A lot can happen between falling in love with a house online and owning it. Between imagining living there and breathing in your new home for the first time. Having an advocate who can help you navigate the complex world of financing, inspections, negotiating, analyzing the market, and talking through any anxieties that may pop up, that can make all the difference. That's what the expertise of a Realtor can do for you. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors and bound by a code of ethics. Because that's who we are. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Coming up, Lab and I set the stage for this week's U.S. Open. Welcome to the Golf Central Podcast presented by Callaway Golf. Did you know that John Rahm almost never hits full shots, eight iron through lob wedge? He prefers to hit three-quarter shots that fly low, so a higher spin ball is a necessity for control. That's what he got in Chrome Soft X for his golf ball. Are you aware of the setup that 2014 U.S. Women's Open champion Michelle Wee West used two weeks ago at Olympic Club? Do you know why PGA champion Phil Mickelson uses a low lob driver combined with a long shaft? If you like equipment notes like these, you're going to love Callaway's new World of Wonder website. Johnny Wonder takes you inside the tour truck, in the bags of staffers on all world tours, and inside the Eli Callaway Performance Center for all things equipment and fitting. What the pros are doing may just help you shoot your best score. Check out callawaygolf.com slash world of wonder today. All right, Laugh, you and I both had an opportunity to see the golf course. What are your thoughts? So I don't think it's going to be drastically different than what we typically see each January for the Farmers Insurance Open, a golf, a, a tournament that you and I have covered regularly over the past decade plus. Now, I think a few of the crucial differences certainly is going to be the rough length. You, you don't see it at four or five, six inches for the annual PJ Tour event here. Um, but with the Kikuyu rough, and that's certainly going to be part of any drinking game that's associated with the U S open is how many times you're going to hear Kikuyu rough mentioned. There's a, an unpredictability to the rough where sometimes you might be able to advance at 200 yards out of the rough. And then other times you're just hacking it out 50 to 75 yards um, and just trying to, to salvage par that way. Um, so that's certainly going to be one of the differences. The springiness of the greens was apparent even on a, on a Tuesday of U S open week. We're actually in the midst of a little bit of a heat wave here. Uh, believe it or not, I did not expect to come to San Diego in, in mid-June uh, and experience temperatures in the low 80s, which is what we had on Tuesday. My forehead is absolutely torched. Um, but that's what we're expecting to have with 0% chance, literally 0% chance of rain for the next five days. And so the USGA has really been handed on a silver platter, an opportunity to make this golf course exactly what it wants and what it always hopes for is a firm and fast setup with the winning score around even par with narrow fairways, thick, rough, firm greens, everything that you would expect from us. Open. I think there is the potential uh, to at least see that this week. Always 70 and sunny. That, that's the deal in San Diego, right? Like we, we knew what this was going to be like, and maybe a little bit warmer than 70 degrees, but you're right. My forehead is, is not scorched because I don't understand how, we haven't even really been on the golf course that much, but all right, please take care of yourself because we don't want to have to worry about that. To your point about thick and spotty rough, I think that's going to be key. I mean, everyone talks about, oh, well, you have to drive the golf ball here. 
uh, so well on this golf course. I don't particularly agree with that. When Tiger won here in 2008, he ranked 53rd in the field. So I don't think necessarily the guy who hits every fairway is going to be the winner. I think there's other things that are going to factor into this, specifically short game, specifically putting, putting in. Tiger was, Tiger was the best in the world at both of those things. So of course it didn't matter. They didn't hit all the fairways. Well, and I mentioned that. That's funny. I mentioned that to Reese Jones today, who of course is the, the, you know, us open architect, the, the doctor, so to speak. Uh, of all of this, and I said, well, when you redesigned the golf course in 2001, were you trying to Tiger-proof it? And he kind of said, well, Tiger was on our minds, but maybe Phil-proof it is what he ended up doing. Because actually, that's pretty much what he has done, right? So Phil won the Farmers Insurance Open in 2001 in February before Reese got his hands on it. And then he had won it three times before that, has not won since. I think he only has two top tens, actually, since then. So for whatever reason that that turned in the wrong direction for him. But to, to your point, the one thing that I heard today that was interesting was Xander Schauffele, who is the local. And if he knows this golf course better than anyone else. And he said that, look, this is a municipal golf course. This isn't Augusta. They don't have the technology and the luxury of being able to pull the water out of the greens and do exactly what they want to do. But what they do have is the forecast that you just pointed out. And they're going to leverage that. And they're going to make sure the golf course is exactly the way they want it. I was told that they cut the rough for the last time on Monday and that the, the goal is to get the green somewhere around 13, 14 on the step meter and sort of let it play out, mm, which is delicious. Quite, it is. And that's exactly what we expect. And, and I've heard the same thing that you heard. The golf course isn't that much different than what we see in February. And yes, it's dry and we don't get the weather that we normally end up at the farmer's insurance open, but it's not like they pinched fairways. It's not like they grew the rough out, you know, four inches higher than what we have that week. It's simply that they they sort of let Nate, Mother Nature step in and decide exactly how it's going to play. And, okay, you guys know this golf course. Go at it, which is impressive on many levels that you can have a municipal golf course that isn't on that level, as I said, as Augusta National as far as technology. And yet the best players in the world are probably looking at this golf course and thinking to themselves, Five under par is a really, really good score this week. Does it seem to you, or am I in the minority here, that there just doesn't seem to be a, a ton of buzz this week? You know, I, I think the, the Brooks Bryson thing is clearly overshadowing everything else, um, and we'll certainly get into that. But the golf course is always a story at a major championship, and yet this one is just it just seems familiar. It's not all that different than what they typically see in January. So it's really not much of an unknown. There isn't a steep learning curve for a lot of these guys. Maybe some of the European uh, players are, are doing a little bit more recon than the Americans just because that's typically the uh, desert swing on the European tour and they, they don't get an opportunity to come over to San Diego and play in late January. Um, so so I think there's, there's that element in play. I mean, we're only – but four weeks removed from the PGA championship. It, what's there, there wasn't, or there weren't any fans um, on the golf course Monday, Tuesday, correct me if I'm wrong. I think they're supposed to be starting to trickle in on Wednesday, but they're probably going to be capped somewhere in that 5,000 neighborhood. They USGA hasn't really said it, it just seems like the, intensity the hype the anticipation the excitement the energy the buzz the juice whatever you want to call it it seems like it's actually turned back like the the dial has been turned down heading into this U- u.s open how, how are you feeling on the eve of this championship 
I don't disagree with your premise, although you started leaking confidence as you got more and more into that. You weren't quite sure exactly how many fans were going to be on the gob. We don't. They, they haven't and, said. And you're not quite sure if they're even allowed out on Wednesday or not. So I think they are. I, I think they are. I'm fairly certain that they're coming tomorrow. Again, leaking confidence. But the, I, I agree with the premise of the idea being that, no, there's not a ton of buzz. And that probably has more to do with, it, to your point, yes, this is a golf course we see year in and year out. So there isn't sort of that mystique of, oh, we're showing up at Marion or, oh, we're showing up at Shinnecock Hills. And what should we expect here? And this is going to be new and this is going to be different. We don't have that element to it. And the other half of this is, is as you pointed out, it seems like we were just at Kiowa 10 minutes ago and we were celebrating Phil Mickelson's unbelievable victory and oldest player to ever win a major championship. And so I think we're just sort of, I want to call it the dog days of the major championship season when it comes to golf now, the way the season, the schedule, the calendar stacks up because you don't have a chance to exhale and sort of get into a new news cycle. You don't have a chance to sort of allow yourself to be like, okay, that one's over. We've digested it. It's time to move on. We're still digesting what Phil did there. And next thing you know, we're here. What do you think of Phil's chances this week? You penned a column on Monday, which I believe you just copy and pasted uh, over every column that you have written since Pinehurst uh, when Phil did not get it done there. I think he finished outside the top 30 that week in 2019. Wow. Uh, no, 2014. Okay. 2014, Phil Mickelson, everyone thought that after the run at Marion, comes to Pinehurst, and a golf course that he clearly had a great chance uh, at 15 years earlier, and then he finished outside the top 30 there. Um, and so I believe starting in 2015 is when you all but wrote off Phil Mickelson, um, who has now become the oldest major champion at age 50. What do you think on the brink of him turning 51? Is this the week, Rex? Is this the week that Phil completes the career grand slam? We're worried about our internet connection because uh, full disclosure here, we're taping this on Tuesday in our hotel at the Sheraton in La Jolla. And so we can't actually see each other. But if you could see me, you would see the, you know, the yuck face that I've painted on. Because it is the lowest form of journalism that I, I, I pulled off on Monday. And it was that, of course not. Are you proud so of this? Gonna, no, I'm not at, at all. I, I'm not proud of it at all because you're right. It was a cut and paste deal. And it's the lowest. It was the change, easiest Just change the date line, put That's the scores right. in. Mickelson, comma. Uh, who recently won the PJ Championship? Comma. Had to add that. Yeah, had to add that. Had to add, had to fix the age. Had to talk about what he's done at Torrey Pines and hasn't done at Torrey Pines in his career. But no, absolutely not. He's not going to do it. And look, I, I wrote it and I had to put the footnote in there. And of course, I get ratioed on Twitter because no one's going to re read the story. They're just going to look at the headline. But the footnote that everyone is missing here is that as a member of the media. As someone who writes stories for a living and, and talks on TV, like Phil Mickelson getting into contention at this particular U.S. Open, at Torrey Pines, at his age, all of those things, that's like a gift from the golf gods. I could, none of us could ask for a greater story than that right now. It's simply not going to happen. If you look at his history on this golf course, as I pointed out, since Reese Jones redesigned it in 2001, if you look at all of the things that have gone sideways, for Phil Mickelson and San Diego. He was supposed to redesign the North Court. It was a very, very easy decision. And yet because of some bureaucratic red tape and some things that Phil clearly wasn't happy about, he was sort of kicked out of that process. 
He's he talked in 2013 about wanting to move out of California because of taxes. He won't touch that subject now, which I totally understand, but he's still moving out of California to southern Florida. All of these things sort of point to a guy that isn't really the hometown guy we're going to make him out to be this week. We're going to make him out to be this, you know, the perfect son, and he's coming home, and it's going to be this victory lap. It's really not. He's, he doesn't play this golf course well. I don't think he particularly likes this golf course, although he would never say that publicly. And there's just nothing in his resume over the last, let's call it 15 years, that would suggest that he's anywhere close to being able to contend for a U.S. Open on this golf course. Yeah, it's certainly a very complicated relationship with Torrey Pines. Just pulled up his record. Phil Mickelson, since the runner-up finished in 2011, has finished just one time inside the top 40. Um, so this is a golf course that he does not like. The golf course does not particularly uh, like him back in his current state either. And I, I totally agree with you. And had he not played so well at Kiowa and what was just an incredible turning back the clock performance. I would think he would have absolutely zero chance in this golf course, but, but what we saw at Kiowa was, was a different fill. It was a, it was a fill we hadn't seen basically since that duel with Stenson in 2016. I mean, he was, he was engaged. He was focused. He, he stayed away from the foul balls. His, his iron play was, was vintage Phil. He was knocking all the five or 10 footers that he absolutely had to have. And, and so that's kind of coloring my perception. And so is the fact that for the last couple of weeks, it's been all business for Phil. So he fulfilled the obligation and played at colonial um, the week after the PGA championship, which I thought was pretty admirable. And then for those two weeks, he hasn't been gloating. He hasn't been celebrating his, his, his incredible PGA triumph he's been game planning and practicing at Torrey Pines because he knows, even though you've been writing him off since 2015, that this is in all likelihood his last best chance to win a U.S. open considering his uh, age, considering, clear, considering been, how well he's playing. I've been writing him off since Pebble beach the last time. So only for three years, but yes, it's been the same cut and paste column since then. Yes. And so look, is he going to win? I can't imagine it. I also could not imagine he was going to win at Keough Island because if you could design a golf course, and we talked about this on the podcast, if you could design a golf course that you would think that Phil is guaranteed to miss the cut at, it would be something along the lines of Kiowa, where it's, it's windy, it's firm, there's literally trouble everywhere. Everywhere you turn on that golf course, there's trouble, and yet Phil seemed to avoid it. And so I think, look, he's probably more likely to miss the cut than to finish the top 10. I think, you know, I don't have the prop bet in front of me. I would think that that would be a more likely scenario. Am I completely ruling it out like you and doing a copy and paste job? No, because I think there is a possibility, however remote that it actually could happen. Uh, would you like to put a dinner on that? I, I, I don't know. International smoke, let's say here in, in San Diego. That, that he's going to win. Yeah. No. Okay. Very good. Why would I? I just said a remote possibility. How did how did you turn remote possibility into me saying he's going to win? No, because you become a master at hedging your bets, and that's exactly what you're doing right now. Yes. You don't want to go down the road of saying that he has no chance of winning, which I've decided to, that's where I'm going to plant my flag. 
And I'm fine with that because I know he doesn't have a chance of winning here. But you, you decide that, okay, instead, I'm going to sit here and straddle the line. That way I don't get ratioed and I don't look like a fool when he misses the cut. I mean, you'd think after, you're, after getting ratioed so many times over the past couple of weeks, you would think you would learn to straddle a little bit more. But no, you continue to take the least popular position in really a, a position that's, that's just you're, – you're, you're not basing it in fact. You're just basing oh, it on I feeling. absolutely did. Have you not seen this record at Torrey Pines since 2011? I mean, 2001? You just read it. Since 2001 is not bad. Since 2011 is bad. All right. Well, whatever number you choose to pick, he simply doesn't play this golf course very well. There's mixed feelings. You call it complicated. I agree with all of it. I'm going to move on now to another opportunity for you to get ratioed. You wrote about it today. Brooks Bryson beef. Where are we at in all this? First of all, I am totally sick of this story. Mm. There were people so begging, but there were there were people begging the USGA to put Brooks and Bryson together for the first two rounds, right? Were you doing it? That that was never going to happen. I don't know. USGA treats the USGA treats the US Open like the most important golf tournament in the world. You think they were really going to subject themselves to being overtaken by the Brooks Bryson sideshow? There was absolutely zero chance of that happening, nor should it have. What do you think is going to happen when Brooks and Bryson get paired together? What do you think is going to happen? They're going to shake hands on one. They're not going to talk for five hours, and then they're going to shake hands again on 18, and then they're going to say nothing in the post-round scrum. Right? That's what's going to happen. And so Uh, instead, instead we just continue to keep this story alive and – and and you're guilty of it. Apparently, I'm guilty of it of it doing today on what was kind of. A, I was about to say you wrote it today. It was a light news day. I had nothing else to write, and I will say that there was more interest in that story today after Brad Faxon popped on SiriusXM and said, "Hey, the USGA called Bryson and asked him if he would welcome a Bryson pairing, and Bryson declined, according to Faxon." Uh, uh, according to Bryson's agent, uh, that he was never asked, and that's an incorrect correct. report. Correct. Move on, he just trying me, to do the journalistic thing. Here. Yes, Falcoff, Brad Falcoff, Bryson's agent today told me totally false. No one from the USJ ever reached out to Brooks and Bryson. It's the USJ, it's their choice. I don't know why this pairing was such a surprise to anybody. Of course, uh, Bryson, as the defending champion, is in his customary position, he's playing alongside the reigning USA Amateur champion in Tyler Strafacci. Um, and because, Rex, the Open Championship was canceled last year, so we do not have Shane Lowry um, with Bryson. We instead have this year's Masters winner, Hideki Matsuyama. Brooks, meanwhile, is just in like the regular ho-hum former major winner group with JT and Colin Morikawa, which is a very good group, uh, but apparently not enough to, sati- to satiate the golf audience and the non-golf audience that would have loved to see Brooks and Bryson together. But I want to, I want to get back to this because there's, there's such a fascination about what these two, what that experience would be like if they're paired together for five hours. And I think the non-golf audience thinks that they're expecting some kind of brawl <laughs> or that they're actually going to say anything to each other. They're not. No. Right now, Brooks is essentially a keyboard warrior, just like everyone else who's in your, in your mentions right now who doesn't have an avatar and can just pop off without repercussions. 
Like Brooks is just trolling him on Twitter and Bryson, as I wrote today, is kind of in an unenviable position because if Bryson fights back, then he either comes across as sensitive or weak or, um, I mean, he's essentially just keeping the story alive. But if he stays quiet and Brooks continues to just prod him, well, he's going to continue to ask about that. And then it becomes a distraction inside the rope. So this is like, it's a, it's a no win situation for, for Bryson and Brooks, I think largely unfairly has just kind of gotten Scott free out of this. Like he's just, he's just calling the shots and, and making this guy's life miserable. No, I would totally, I would completely agree with that because the fact of the matter is in this particular situation, it's and this is an oversimplification i apologize however this is your classic bully versus kind of the high school nerd and bryson is kind of the high school nerd in this situation and brooks is going to keep poking until he gets some sort of reaction i will give bryson credit that he has chosen to continue to stay on the high road and that's that can't be an easy thing for him to do because you're hearing it from the crowd you're hearing it from the media i mean he spoke with the media today and i would venture a guess that at least half the questions had to do with this and simply because it's not going to go away and I, I you're right everyone is tired of this story that being said when we asked Gary Woodland about the reports earlier this afternoon and he had kind of gotten tied in with this because the idea was you're going to put the last three U.S. Open champions into a pairing together and Gary Woodland was right there alongside everybody on social media and I would love to see this. It would be fantastic. It would drive interest to the game. So there is something to be said for it. I, I can't imagine that the USJ even considered this. However, I get the idea. And eventually, these two are going to be paired together. And it's going to come back up. And it's going to be an issue. And until then, we're just going to continue to talk about it. So actually, conveniently enough, it was at Torrey Pines a couple of years ago. You may remember in 2018, Patrick Reed took a couple shots at at uh, Jordan Spieth saying that it was it was Spieth's fault that they broke up their great pairing and that you know Spieth just wanted to play with Justin Thomas and and that's the reason why Patrick played so poorly in Paris and so that went on for a couple of months and they it kind of avoided each other and at Tory Pines for the PG Tour event they were paired together and Spieth was the one who broke the ice he did like the mock hug on the first tee that kind of broke it broke the ice and and they've been fine ever since. I think that was largely blown out of proportion um, with, with P Reed's comments to the New York times, but this one seems like there's more animus uh, involved. And I pointed it out in the column too, is that Brooks could have squashed this thing very easily. That would be the mature thing to do for a 31 year old who has you know a, a pretty high stature in this game right can we can we agree on that i mean if that's what happened then yes absolutely yes instead brooks has decided to lean into this and i can't help but think that this has to be tied in some way to this player impact program the 40 million dollar pool that awards Money to the top 10 needle movers, including $8 million to the top one. Are you trying to tell me that you think he's doing this for $8 million? I'm saying that he is now incentivized 
to continue to play up this story and to promote this image and to keep this story in the in the news. Yes, hundred percent. Oh, I don't know about we, that. We I, are, I feel, we are, feel like we are, we are media professionals, Rex. We know how this works. Conflict means content, which means cash. That's how it works. Conflict sells. Conflict sells. Conflict, conflict sells. I totally agree with that. Now we don't know how the rest of this player impact program works. And so to your point, and I have been told, we, we don't know the exact scenarios or how the algorithms work out, but I've been told that the idea is they would filter negative media exposure content out of whatever the equation is. There's no, re- there's no way to, then you're, then you're getting into subjective. Well, what's positive, what's negative? I mean, the entire list is subjective. H- however you want to sit here and talk about it. I mean, the, yes. the things that they've chosen to, to reward, this is all subjective. You can, sit here and try to give it some sort of matrix, but it's never going to, to be a true measure of exactly who's popular and who's not popular. So, But my argument is we don't know exactly how this is getting created. We don't know exactly what goes into this list. And I would argue that at this stage in his career, at this stage in both of their careers, yeah, I just don't know about that, simply because for you and I and anyone else listening to this podcast, $8 million is a lot of money. And I understand how the idea that you can start some sort of social media beef and come out on the better end of that in this player impact program. Yeah. All right. Maybe there is something there, but I just don't think it means that much to those two guys, considering everything that could go wrong in this situation. And certainly in Bryson's situation, a lot could go wrong. As you pointed out, this is a no win. He cannot win this. No matter what he does, he's either going to look like he's coming off light or he's being defensive it's just not going to work. And so I, I think the idea that these two have sort of contrived this is a little out of bounds. I think what you have here, like you have in every other workplace, is a situation where you two people don't like each other. I don't know. Let's say you and I don't like each other, which everyone seems to think maybe they like each other, maybe they don't. No one seems that's to know. A, that's sure. the beauty of the podcast. That's right. No one seems to know for sure. But you and I don't like each other. It's a, it's a way of life. And I think this is exactly what it is. You have sort of a workplace environment where two guys clearly aren't going to get along, but they find a way to work together. And I, I thought it was interesting today that Bryson specifically was asked about the Ryder Cup. And his answer was probably one of the better answers we've seen in all of this nonsense. And it was like, look, when we're at the Ryder Cup, we're a team. That's not going to be an issue. And I truly believe that, that no, they're probably not going to get paired together. And yes, Steve Stricker is probably a little uncomfortable by all this, made a little uncomfortable by all this. But the fact of the matter is, it, you have 12 guys on that team. There is no way they're not all going to get along. And if Tiger is a vice captain and they're splitting him into pods, first of all, they're not going to be the same pod. Second of all, I think Tiger has the cachet in that team room to be able to sit them down and say, you need to be grown-ups for a week. Put your little petty squabble aside and let's go try and win the cup against a very good European team. Like I could, I, 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 I don't think that Brooks Bryson is a cancer in the U S team room. Now you also have to keep in mind, Brooks is all Brooks has also had issues with other members of the American team. It's, it's not like it's just with, with Bryson. He's also got a big problem with his former uh, partner, in team competitions with Dustin Johnson as well. Just last year, 
with with their relationship once again going under the microscope. Well, and Patrick Reed is probably going to end up in that team. And let's face it, he hasn't been the best teammate going along. They, you figure it out. I don't think it's going to be an issue. Steve Stricker is going to be the type of captain that's going to be able to massage these types of things and make them work out. All right, th- we're going to go for the big finish here. So I'm going to ask you for some lightning round answers here. Give me your sleeper for this week. And a sleeper, by our definition, we wrote it this afternoon, outside the top 25 in the world rank. So there's there's a bunch. Uh, there's absolutely right. a bunch. You could look I, at... You didn't make it plural. It was, give me your sleeper. Yes, but people are filling out their office pools if they're still in their office or they're still or they're, they're at-home pools or they're... Uh, or they're degenerates who are, who are spending God knows how much money um, on gambling or uh, DFS leagues. And so you could look at guys like Justin Rose, the winner here in 2019. You could look at Marsh Le- Mark Leishman, another guy uh, who is certainly better with a fit than current form. But the only answer that makes sense here is Will Zalatoris. Forget about contending, and the, the question was sleeper to contend. This guy could win his last three major results, T6, 2, T8. How did he finish in January here at this golf course? T7. Rex, he's the only sleeper worth considering. And the fact that he was outside the top 25, he's not going to be there for very long. But the fact that he was outside the top 25 and I could name him in this category, to me, any other choice is wrong. I don't feel you and I did a very good job of communicating because we picked the same sleeper. So I went with Will as well. He's 29th in the world. My point in this being that he's not going to be a sleeper for very long because by the time we probably do our next major and we have to do our next sleeper, he's going to be inside about, that top 25. All right, so how about, how, about, how about some other guys since people are clearly going to be disappointed that we just picked the same guy? Yeah, we didn't do it. Like I said, we didn't do a very good job. I, I will argue, however, that even though I feel like he's a good sleeper, I don't know if he's particularly going to be the guy that gets it done because, as you pointed out, he played really well here in February, but I think this is the type of golf course that you probably need to have a little bit more experience on. Uh, the, the other guy that I really thought about for a long time was Mark Leishman, and, and you kind of brought him up simply because he's playing well right now. He just won, even though it was a team event a few weeks ago in New Orleans, and it's a golf course where he's had success. So that would be the other one that I would think of. Uh, I know he's not technically inside the top 25, but I looked at him immediately as Jason Kokrak. I'm not sure I want to write a Jason Kokrak gamer on Sunday. Oh, come um, on, you got this. But but look, he's won twice a season. Um, he's a big dude who can who can muscle it out of four, five, six-inch rough. Uh, he's drastically improved his putter. The only issue with Kokrak is that he's played extremely poorly in the majors. Uh, for someone who's now inside the top 25 in the world. You know, I, don't, I don't think he has the top 15, actually, um, in a major championship. Um, I would suspect that that changes this week. Uh, a guy who's playing well in a golf course um, that would certainly seem to bring out the best of his skill set. I was surprised. I thought you were going to go with your boy Gracie because, I mean, you leaned into him on qualifying day and that, that, no love for Brendan Grace now. I think I – think the ardent followers of this podcast know that Brandon Grace is a perpetual sleeper uh, at every single major championship. That's where you're going to leave it. All right. So he's always going to be a sleeper. We don't even have to say his name anymore. Nope. It's just, I, it's just assumed that he's going to be in the mix. All right. Very good. Give me your favorite. No plural. 
No S's. Just give me your favorite. Um, John Rom, and it feels too chalky, but sometimes that's okay because it just makes a lot of sense. <laughs> like his record, this golf course is exceptional. John said himself that his 54 hole performance at the Memorial was arguably the best of his career. It wasn't like he was bedridden with COVID for a week. Um, as he explained on Tuesday to us at his press conference, he was vaccinated uh, against COVID-19. He just hadn't reached that 14-day clearance window yet. And so he said that he did not have any symptoms. He just needed to isolate himself until he got the all-clear sign. And the fact that he was cleared last Saturday, um, to me, gives him ample time to get ready for the U.S. Open. I think he'll be... I think he'll be in fine form. And I, I, since I, I know you wrote about him today, um, I, I know you fully agree that he, he handled the entire situation uh, with a lot of grace, a lot of class. I think he's, what, 26 years old. I think um, he, he certainly showed uh, some poise and, and took responsibility for his actions. And I think if the golf gods certainly owe him one, if he couldn't collect that $1.6 million paycheck at Jack's place, I think he would do well to – to get the, the, the $2 million plus here that goes along with the U.S. Open? Well, I think the thing about Rom is all the things you pointed out. I mean, it, it's really an amazing story. I mean, to have a six-stroke lead and to really have that robbed from you. And you're right. At 26 years old, he showed an amazing amount of grace, really is what he did. And you could sit here and say, for all the right reasons, he should be the favorite this week. The guys in Vegas got it right. He's won here before. He proposed to his wife over those cliffs looking over Black's Beach. And I really think he's probably the guy to beat this week. But if I had to pick someone, and this is really amazing for me to say this, but I was talking with Pete Cowan yesterday on the range, on, on Monday on the range, and I asked him jokingly, you'll appreciate this because Pete is Pete. And I go, which one of your head cases do you like the most this week? And he kind of, he started running through the scorecard of, okay, well, Rory's hitting it really, really well. And Brendan Grace is doing this and Gary Woodland is doing that. And he felt confident for all his players as most swing coaches would be. But then he stopped when he got to Brooks and he said, the winner is going to be the guy that's able to beat Brooks, which coming from Pete Cowan is a pretty lofty comment because he's not the kind of guy that's going to though hyperbole out. He's going to look at the player and realize that this is what it takes to win a major championship. He's coached enough major champions to know what it takes. And I just think that, Brooks is finally to the point where, and I asked him about it today, physically, I don't think he's worried about his knee anymore. And he's not having to go through all the rehab and do the things that he had to do at the Masters and going forward. And I think there was a level of confidence that he was able to take from his performance at Kiowa Island, even though he didn't get it done on Sunday, but just to put himself back into contention and to, to let him know that, yes, I can still do this. And then you put him on a U.S. Open venue that requires all the things that he does so well. I just think this would be the week for him simply because it wasn't that long ago when he was sort of the U.S. Open doctor of his generation. And I think after everything's said and done, he's going to be very, very keen to change the narrative after what's been a very, very tough couple of weeks for him. Hmm. That's an interesting thing. I don't necessarily disagree. And it was interesting listening to Brooks uh, last week talk about how he while missing the cut at Congaree was just kind of 
going through the motions, dr- just kind of drifting in and out while paying attention. He just says, you know, my mind's already on next week at, at Torrey Pines and what I need to do there. And I'm just, I'm just not motivated enough to play well at regular PGA Tour events. He does need to figure that out um, because he's not on a pace where he's going to win a major championship every single year. And he still needs to play 15 to 20 events uh, to keep his membership. And I would assume that he would not like to just finish 40th. Um, how much scar tissue I do want to ask, how much scar tissue do you think Brooks takes from Kiwa? Cause you have to keep in mind Rex. I know he has been one of the best major performers. Certainly he's been the, he's been the best major performer over the past five years, but he has, he has missed a couple of opportunities over the last two. You think of he had an opportunity to chase down Tiger in 2019. He nearly gave up the enormous lead to DJ at Beth Page in the next major. He had an opportunity last uh, summer at the PJ Championship where he was calling out everyone, including uh, world number one Dustin Johnson over his one major. Um, and we saw how that ended up going later that year in November, and then he couldn't beat a 50-year-old Phil Mickelson at the PGA. How much scar tissue do you think he's accrued over the past couple of years, and what do you think his biggest takeaway was from not getting it done against Phil at Kiowa? I don't know how much scar tissue. I mean, there's more scar tissue on that knee than I think in his psyche, simply because you're talking about him losing to Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson. Granted, a 51-year-old Phil Mickelson, I will give you that, but still, you're talking about two of the greatest players of the generation. So I don't know that he really went home kicking himself over that. He had an opportunity. You don't think, you don't think Brooks was kicking himself. He missed back-to-back 10 footers on 17 and 18 at the masters. And he couldn't beat a 50 year old Phil Mickelson who did not play well over the first five or six holes. If Brooks plays those holes in one or two under, I think that's a completely different Sunday at the PGA championship. Oh, it could have been absolutely. Had he done anything on those first, literally anything, anything, I, 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 yeah, I mean, he plays those in one or two under par, then yes, it's an entirely different ball game. But he didn't. I mean, we can sit here and try to reinvent history, but the fact of the matter is, in this situation, Brooks, better than probably anyone else, understands that I just didn't have my game on that particular Sunday. And you point out that over the last five years, he has been the guy in major championships that you look at and you think, oh, he undisputed, Undisputed best player of the majors over the last five years, like by a whopping margin has the formula the other side of that coin is you understand when you don't have it that yes i understand on a sunday that everything is falling into place and i'm the guy to beat and everyone else should be absolutely terrified of me you also understand the flip side of it that yeah i don't have this today and a 51 year old is going to wear me out I, i think the other side of the coin is that after everything he's been through with the knee injury and obviously the the negative press that's coming with whatever's happening between he and Bryson. And he was able to put himself into contention. And even though he didn't get it done, I think he takes more positives than negatives out of that. I mean, it was certainly remarkable to think of how far he has come over the past couple of months when he uh, had the dislocated knee and required surgery in March, there was a question of whether he even be able to play in a major championship in 2021. Then he comes back a month later, kind of just to prove to himself that he could get it done. And even though he missed the cut, you know, he, I think he was just proud of the fact that he was able to get back and play 36 holes. And then to do it a month later with very little uh, competitive reps under his belt, he was able to nearly win. My bigger point 
is you look at Brooks's last five Sundays in the majors, 74, 70, 74, 74. That's not great. That's not great. It's not great. And it'll be something that look, we could ask him about this tomorrow and he's going to dismiss it and he's going to be the tough guy and he's going to be the cool guy. He's going to roll his eyes at us. But the fact of the matter is I still think in his mind, at least, he is the guy to beat on a Sunday at a major championship. If you take everything else away, if you peel it all away like an onion and you say, okay, whatever's happening between you and Bryson, all the injuries that you've dealt with, if none of those things ever happened, I think that's where he's at right now. Because I don't know that he allows himself that type of doubt that he's going to break it down like you just did. Statistically, on Sunday, over the last five majors, I simply have been awful. No, he's never going to allow himself to do that. Uh, since we are in the storytelling business, a Brooks win on Sunday and then the post-round press conference uh, would make for some very, very good material. Uh, well, we're in the storytelling business, so why don't we just take it a step further? He he wins, but he was in the final group with, with Bryson, so there's so many things. There's just, so, like, let's just go for the home run. Bryson, uh, top 10 finisher outside the top 10? Uh, no, I think he does finish in the top 10. I, I think both he and Brooks have something to prove. And that's always a good motivator. I mean, Bryson, he doesn't play with a chip on his shoulder like Brooks does, but he certainly likes being in this situation. Might be the first podcast uh, previewing a major championship in history in which we did not mention the world number one in Dustin Johnson, who has missed the cut in each of his first two majors of 2021. We did not mention my favorite and America's favorite, Jordan Spieth, uh, who is dealing with a little bit of a right heel, right foot issue. Watched him for a couple holes today. Didn't look uh, particularly sharp, but Jordan's a gamer. Uh, we love you, Jordan. Rest up, and I'm sure you'll be back to winning majors soon. All right. Well, I'm glad to see we just completely clung to the line journalistically. That'll do it for this edition of the Golf Channel Podcast, presented by, presented by Callaway Golf. We'll see you next week. A lot can happen between falling in love with a house online and owning it. Between imagining living there and breathing in your new home for the first time. Having an advocate who can help you navigate the complex world of financing, inspections, negotiating, analyzing the market, and talking through any anxieties that may pop up, that can make all the difference. That's what the expertise of a Realtor can do for you. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors and bound by a code of ethics. Because that's who we are. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.